your host. Uh, we're going to have a, a prayer right now by Brother Alex Pollock, and he's going to grace us with a, a beautiful number. So, uh, Brother Alex, come on up and uh, share your talents with the Lord and bring in the Spirit. Father God, we praise you and bless you. We give you thanks, O Lord, for who you are, all that you're doing in each individual. Everyone is important to you. Every lost soul is important to you. Father, you laid down our life for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God, for showing us the higher standards you gave us that no man can reach. But you taught us to do Jesus is the answer.
if you talk about Mormon theology and the ontology to make up of God, there is a talk that there is an eternal regression of gods. Okay? And what that means is God had a father who had a father who had a father who had a father that father on back eternally. It just keeps on going. There's an eternal regression of gods birthing new gods. There is also the idea that God was once a man. Okay? Now, the LDS today, they kind of scout about that a little bit, but definitely it used to be taught strongly, and today I think it still is. Uh, then there is the idea that God, as a man, or uh, was a created being. Okay? And we know uh, that in the Christian faith, we believe that God has always been, not a created being, and that uh, God is in a glorified body of flesh and bone. So he has a body of flesh and bone. Okay? Now, that is really out there for Christians. They're like, what? And, uh, but that is the belief. And then that God is married to a woman. She's mother in heaven. And if you go back in church history, you'll discover that God had many wives, that she's really one of the mothers in heaven. So I'm just going to put this mother in heaven, otherwise known as the meh. And, um, and then finally, God has literally fathered the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, because he's in a body of flesh and bone, and Brigham Young and other uh, uh, church leaders have taught that he literally came down and had relations as a man would sire a son here on earth with Mary, and the product, end product was Jesus Christ. Okay, So we'll just put uh, that the father sired Jesus. Now, within Christianity, biblical Christianity, this stuff is like, whoa, that is way out there, way beyond the pale of what we would ever suggest about the makeup of God. We say God is from all eternity. God is a spirit. God is a consuming fire. We say that he's not married, that God is not a human, created human being, doesn't have that body of flesh and bones, uh, no meg going on, and that Jesus is the product of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Admittedly, fanciful stuff beyond the sound biblical hermeneutic. There is no leeway given the LDS by Christians. None. They say none of that. This makes Mormonism false, 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 right? And admittedly, we kind of get this. That's acceptable because it does counter so much of what we believe from the Bible. Uh, there are lines, there are boundaries that do define our faith. And these are outside of them, okay? So we, we, we think this is important because knowing the true and living God is life eternal. That's what Jesus said, to know the true and living God and his son whom he has sent is life eternal. So it's really important to know who he is in spirit and in truth. No argument, really. Um, but in my estimation, there exists a holy unfortunate inconsistency within the body of Christ with, with this view of Mormonism. And it's because while we will not accept the LDS teachings about God at all, we will not, we accept, and most of our higher ranking 
in terms of intelligence and education Christians, they preach and teach the God of five-point Calvinism. Okay? The God of five-point Calvinism is completely accepted within Christianity. It's okay that you view the, the God of five-point Calvinism. It's okay that you accept a Calvinist view of God. Don't worry about it. You're a Christian. But when I compare what the LDS say, which I don't accept, with the God of five-point Calvinism, I'm going to tell you frankly, I take this one before that one any day of the week. Now, this one's way out there, and I don't accept it. But if I was forced, gun to my head, pick a God, it's not going to be this guy. But within Christianity, we accept this guy just like that. We say, no problem. The Mormons are terrible. They say God has a wife. He was once a man, etc., etc. Well, let me give you the problem with the God of five-point Calvinism. And the reason I describe him as that is because rather than uh, relate him to the five points of Calvinism itself, the God of five-point Calvinism is one of the most frightening gods known to man, in my opinion. Let me see if I can tell you why in, in like five quick points. Being sovereign, okay, meaning he always gets his way when he wants to get his way and in whatever way he chooses to get his way, this God does not use his powerful sovereignty. He does not use his sovereignty to redeem his creations. He uses it to redeem a few of his creations. Just a few in the scope of things. Now, he's sovereign. He can do anything he wants, according to the Calvinists, but he elects to only redeem a few. To save, he refuses to save all or anything like it. Again, only some and really only a few. No matter, for no other reason, understand, no other reason than he wants to. This is not outside the pale. I've, I've read enough about it. I've argued enough about it with guys like Matt Slick and other Calvinists. It's because he wants to, okay? Now, knowing everything before it ever happened from the beginning, this God chose to create the human race fully aware that he would not choose to save it, okay? He, before he created one human anything, he said, I'm going to create billions, trillions of people and I'm only going to save a few of them. The rest of them are going to suffer. Now, he would not choose to save some because those sums were good or because those sums were, were special in any way. All of his creations are evil. Okay? But he, out of his own sovereign will, decides not of anything anyone's done to save just those few, okay? And those few are just as evil in him saving them as those he does not save. Remember that. 
Okay? He created all of us knowing that we would be evil, but he chooses only to save some, and they are supposed to be grateful that he chose to grant them his solution. We are supposed to, a family sitting of five at a table, one has been elected by God, the sovereign God of Calvin. He has been chosen, and he, with a smile on his face, looks at his uh, wife and his kids and says, God created you to Bernie forever in hell, but he saved me. I don't know why he chose me, but he did. And this is the God, Calvin, and I know I'm, I'm kind of have a goofy face and I'm talking, but this is how it is. I'm not making this up. When you extrapolate it out, all the rest have absolutely no chance at all of being redeemed, okay? Being sovereign, knowing all things from the beginning, he caused or he allowed for humankind to fall into sin through Adam and did not provide a solution to save all of them. He wasn't going to from the beginning. Again, his solution only saves a few. Why would he not choose to save all if all are evil, just as evil, and none of us bring anything to the table to justify an existence or being saved? It's not like those he elects to save are superior to those he elects to suffer. Nevertheless, this is the God of five-point Calvinism. All right? Now, those he does not elect to save. Now, remember, Everyone is evil, and he elects, and that means he gives you the faith to believe on him. He gives it to you. If he didn't, you would not ever believe on him. And once he does that, that's his will. The rest he does not give that solution to, okay? Those he chooses not to elect because human beings could do nothing to save themselves burn forever and ever in literal flames of a lake of fire of hell. To the Calvinists, this is fair. This is fair since we are all deserving of burning forever in hell. And, and so they, those who escape it, Calvinists say, it's by his grace and by his goodness. He has done that. The fact is that those who don't escape it, that is his justice. That's his justice. Now, this is the weak, the weak link in the chain to call that his justice. Here's why. We have creations God knew that he was not going to save, who did not ask to be created, come down and are in the human form. God, because they're totally reprobate, has to save them, but he says no. So those reprobates have no choice of redemption. They were created to burn forever and ever in hell, and this is a just God who not only doesn't provide them with a the solution, he created them knowing he wouldn't provide them a solution, and this shows his justice. This is the mind of the Calvinistic God. This is an unfortunate inconsistency that we will, as believers, allow, even permit, this God to be described as the God we, uh, that we worship and love openly without any resistance, really, and call them Christian, but these fanciful ideas, these guys are all a cult. I don't know how that happens. I, I honestly don't. Now remember, I don't agree with either of them. But I mean, why the inconsistency? One final thought. Christians criticize the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, because of the things he did as the prophet. 
Uh, they use his life and the failures of things he did behind the scenes to prove that his theology was errant. Uh, a simple study shows that Calvin, very petty, very mean-spirited, um, and he went to merciless lengths to punish anyone who would not accept the five points that he established to the point where he had them tortured, imprisoned, and we don't know, but it's believed he went along with Servetus being killed. Now, Calvinists defend that by saying, well, that was just the times. That's, that was just part and parcel of religion at the time. The Holy Spirit's been the Holy Spirit since the day of Pentecost. It guides us all in the same way. It moves all of us to love and forgive. And so in the 1500s, when Calvin comes along and he does this, there's no justification for it. None at all. Any more than there's justification for Smith taking on secret young wives and marrying them in the name of polygamy like the Old Testament. So those behaviors are carnal on this side and that, but yet the inconsistency continues. There's entire schools, religions, or, or uh, denominations based on this, and they, f they flourish under the realm of Christianity. And yet they are allowed to do it and revere the guy who helped Fund, fundamentally start their uh, thoughts, and yet we will point a finger at this side because of this guy's proclivities and strange doctrines. It's inconsistent and uh, not fair whatsoever, if we're going to be fair. All right. Last week, we said we we're going to begin a new topic tonight, and that would be on Satan. And I was all planning on doing it, but three things popped up regarding the Holy Spirit, so we're doing the final part of the Holy Spirit. I think you'll find these things interesting. Uh, I'm going to go quickly. Romans in the New Testament starts to bring out a whole bunch of things about the Holy Spirit that aren't brought out before. Romans 8 in particular brings out a lot about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 8 too, the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. It, the Holy Spirit's known as the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 6 speaks of being spiritually minded. Spiritually minded. That's a new concept. Uh, the Spirit of God in Romans 8, 9 dwells in you, and then Paul adds, and the Spirit of Christ. I have a question for you. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, are they different? Are they one and the same? Ask yourself these questions as I read these off. Romans 8, 11, the Spirit of Him and His Spirit. Romans 8, 15 talks about the Spirit of bondage and the Spirit of adoption. Romans uh, 8, 16 speaks of our having spirit, each individual and their spirit. And then Romans 8.27 speaks of the mind of the Spirit. The book of Romans as a whole introduces a number of things relative to the Spirit that I didn't touch on. I will quickly. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That's another title the Spirit is given. The Spirit of holiness. Uh, and then Paul refers to his own Spirit saying, My God is my witness whom I serve with my Spirit. So he differentiates between the Spirit Holy Spirit, and his own spirit. And he talks about it as almost it's an individual entity, which is really unique. Romans mentions that people are inwardly Jews today. Since Paul, Paul wrote this, listen to what he says. Those of you who think there's a Jewish community out there because of their heritage and their foreskin and all that stuff, you think that there's a nation of Jews? Listen to what Paul says, Romans 8, uh, 2, 29. He, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. That's how, that's, those are the Jews, inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, okay? 
in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. It clearly shows that that former religion, that is a spiritual thing now in the heart. And it's an inward thing, not an outward thing. Romans 5, 5 says that the Holy Ghost is given unto us. We learn in Romans 7, 6, that in the newness of spirit we should live, not in the oldness of the letter. And then that there is now no condemnation to them which walk in Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Every time I've mentioned spirit tonight, the word is always just pneuma in the Greek. It's just pneuma. It's nothing more. Sometimes they have added hagias pneuma, Holy Spirit. The rest of the time, talking about Christ's spirit, my spirit, your spirit, Paul's spirit, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, pneuma, 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 pneuma. It's just spirit. Uh, there's a law, the spirit of life, as I said. Uh, Romans 8, 5 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Romans 8, 6 says, To be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. And then he adds. So he just says, listen, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you. You see how he's established that. The spirit of God dwells in you. Then listen to what he says. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So he actually likens the spirit of God to the spirit of Christ. This is a new concept coming out from Paul. But they are actually one and the same. Romans 8.10 tells us that there's a way to tell if Christ is in us. The spirit of life. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life because of righteousness. There's a different spirit in us when Christ is there. And that spirit, I could go on and on. The spirit helps us pray. The spirit has a mind. The spirit, there's a spirit of slumber that it talks about in Romans 11, 8, uh, uh, that we should not be slothful, but fervent in spirit. The kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit that we are abounding through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all spirit. It's everything is spirit in the new covenant, okay? So those are some, uh, some things about the spirit. Then I received an email from a man named John P. And he says, hey, really liked your insights on the Holy Spirit. And he writes, we are in complete agreement with the Holy Spirit being the breath of God instead of a being third person of the Holy Trinity the breath of God, he writes, some points that you had not covered in your examination include the example of Jesus breathing on his apostles before Pentecost and saying, receive the Hagias Numa, receive the Holy Spirit. And he blows on them with his mouth and they do. It says they did and they received the Holy Spirit. That's before the Holy Spirit fell. Where did it come from? Jesus, mortal man, all God, breathing on them, and they received the Holy Spirit at that point. I read, when I taught on that, I read through all the commentators. They're juggling to try to understand that one. I mean, they're like, well, you know, it was just a, a little taste of what the Holy Spirit would be, so they would identify it when it fell at Pentecost. All kinds of stuff. Bottom line, Jesus breathed on them. They received the Spirit. There it is. Day of Pentecost. The Spirit was a rushing wind, like a rushing wind. Old Testament uh, prophets said the Messiah would bring a refiner's fire. John the Baptist, analogy of the Savior using a fan to blow away the chaff, the hard shell on us. 
off the grain so he could put us in the kingdom of God, the Savior coming to baptize with the Spirit and with fire, and Paul's statement of delivering one to the buffeting of Satan, and John the Revelator's lake of fire, all this stuff referring to Spirit, John adds there's probably many more. So great insights, John. Thanks for sending those along, and I'm just touching on them. But I want to add one more thing that we omitted last week. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. It's a little heavy. I'll try to be quick. And if you watch campus, this is going to be a reiteration, but a good one. In 1 John, John the Beloved wrote, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's 1 John 2.1. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. When he writes advocate, the word in the Greek is paraclete. Parakletos, really. Okay? Why is this interesting? For starters, the term is used by Jesus, too four times in the Gospel of John. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, that's what he says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, that word Comforter in the Greek is parakletos. So what he said, but the parakletos, which is the Holy Spirit, that's Jesus talking. Okay, you got that in your mind? So Jesus says the paraclete is the Holy Spirit. Um, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. This is one instance of four where the parakletos is known in the masculine gender, and it's why throughout the rest of the New Testament, the scholars translate the Holy Spirit as a he rather than an it, the neuter general, uh, gender, okay? But note, the parakletos is the Holy Spirit by Jesus. Who was he saying this to? His apostles, whom John was one of. He heard it. Who does John say is the Holy Spirit? He says in 1 John, if any man sin, we have an advocate, parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ called the Holy Spirit, the, uh, called the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. But John, after the ascension and the fall of the Holy Spirit, says it's Jesus Christ, that he is the Holy Spirit, that he is the comforter. That's what he says there. What gives? Lord, forgive me if I'm wrong. But prior to his passion and his ascension and overcoming sin and death, Jesus was operating, if you will, by God, Holy Spirit, full of him, fully God. He's walking about in flesh as a man, and he's operating by the Spirit. Once he overcame his flesh and sin and death by hearkening to the Holy Spirit of God in him, the Spirit of Jesus, we just might consider that the Spirit filters through, uh, it's a conjecture, through Christ now, through his sanctified flesh. It filters through him and it goes out. And that way Christ is in us. So on this hand, we have pre-cross, Jesus says, but the paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit, and then post-cross, we have John say, but the paraclete is Jesus the righteous. The person of the Holy Spirit is lost between those two. How? Why? I think this is how, upon Jesus' death and victory, Christ himself lives in us. He now lives in us. Um, that's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. Okay? Prior to Jesus dying and overcoming sin in the, in, in, the, in the flesh, he couldn't enter us. He couldn't. All right? 
But when he ascended and he did everything, Christ now lives in us by the Spirit of Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 14, listen carefully for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now listen to this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He doesn't say Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith by the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Trinity. He says, Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and, and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was Christ's purpose, to bring the fullness of God into human beings who trusted in him by faith. All right? In my estimation, John assigned the term paraclete, which Jesus assigned to the Holy Spirit, to Christ in one heck of a passage. Paul says in Romans 8, 10, 9, 10, You are not in the flesh, but of the Spirit. If so be, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, period, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Here the Spirit of God is made synonymous to the Spirit of Christ. They're one and the same. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, it's one. It's God by Christ dwelling in fallen man. Philippians talks about the supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 1.9. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.11, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul clearly assigns the Spirit to Jesus when he says, Now the Lord is that Spirit. The Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. All of these things cause me to see that the Spirit or Holy Spirit, much more in terms of God, the motivating force of God, which for lack of a better word, passed through or passes through the perfected mortal flesh or person of Christ and who is now able to abide in human beings who look to him in faith. The fact that the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, the Spirit synonymously is applied to Christ Jesus is yet more evidence that the person of the, uh, the personhood of the Holy Spirit is a fiction. I think it's a man-made fiction and it was used by Constantine to unify the faith. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators are taking your calls, consider this. Arnita is going to be uh, directing that. She's had a lot of experience in the theater. She's read the script. She understands it really well. And what this is, is going to be the launch, the native, native voyage. What's the voyage when it's first? Maiden. Maiden. Thank you. 
have a local scholar over here, the maiden voyage of campus of Aletheia stage. And what that is, is every year we're going to open up uh, uh, our stage that we're creating here and we're going to take playwrights and we're going to produce one play a year and which will be focused somehow on the uh, faith in Christ and or love of Christ or whatever it is. And so this is going to be the maiden voyage of that. And we're looking to put it on in fall. If you know anybody who lives in the uh, Salt Lake area who has acting talent or behind the scenes talent, construction talent, whatever it is, we can use everybody, uh, makeup, etc. cetera. Uh, so please let them know and don't be shy. Get involved. It's going to be fun. And uh, we're going to push through the summer. So go from there. All right. Uh, hello, Mr. McCrane. I just want to say thank you. I'm an ex-Marine. I served from 3.03 to 07 in Iraq. And since coming back to find a good church to be part of has been difficult. Well, I recently had a knock at my door and it was a group of Mormons. And I'm the kind of guy I let them in and they gave me a book of Mormon and told me I couldn't come to the church unless I quit smoking, stop drinking coffee. And he says, well, I know smoking is bad, but I can't help but enjoy a cigar. I quit cigarettes but went to cigars. I've smoked since I came back from Iraq. Needless to say, we didn't have anything to calm us down over there after a firefight, so all 90% of us smoked. I just don't understand why someone would lay down rules to attend their church. They told me I, could, I would also have to wear long sleeve shirts because I have tattoos. They told me that looking at a woman was, uh, with lust was an unpardonable sin, so I was confused for a while, but then I discovered the YouTube channel and the preaching, and I watched one tonight where you were talking about uh, it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of it, and this touched me deeply. You made me realize that even if I do smoke, Jesus still loves me, uh, still, always did, always has, and uh, who knows, if Jesus walked the earth, he may have puffed on a cigar himself, and that's not blasphemy. He drank wine. I mean, come on. He was the son of man. That was his favorite title to call himself. He called himself son of man three times more than he called himself son of God. He loved a good party. His first miracle, turning water into wine. What kind of wine? Alcoholic wine. How do we know that? Because the host of the party said, you've, you've, uh, you've brought the great wine out first. And how do you tell it's great wine? Because of it's the way it, the, the flavor and the zest and the alcohol content of it. This is the best stuff we've ever had. You know, we get real dogmatic. He came into this world not to condemn us. He came into this world to save us as we are, where we are. And then he keeps loving us as we are, where we are. He does not stop loving us based off conditions. He never does. He saved us, as Paul says, while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners. So uh, I engaged with a man coming out of uh, Mormonism named Carlos in Arizona over the phone a while ago. He wrote me and he said, you know, I want to know if we could start up our dialogue again. I've been drawn into William Lane Craig's apologetics on the existence of God, and he's helped solidify my belief in God with his philosophy as well as reading scripture. And so he went to talk about William Lane Craig, who's a great mind. He goes to, he's a professor at Biola, way beyond uh, what I can comprehend mostly, but a great mind. Well, Carlos, then later on, I get a text from him, and he wanted insight about his questions about God. And so he contacted an apologetic group that used to like me, 
and asked them where to go next. And he said, I have been watching and talking with Sean McCraney, and I also have been reading William Lane Craig. This is a quote from them back, and he forwarded me the text. To start with, in your search, Carlos, unfortunately, Sean McCraney has fallen into heresy. Also, we have very strong disagreements with William Lane Craig's theology and apologetics. I would start by no longer reading or listening to them. Uh, it's really just amazing. When do we stop? I get when people will say that I have become heretical because I do talk about things outside and I'm not afraid to, to consult God in different ways uh, and see his scripture in different ways. So I see how you can say he's a little bit heretical and all that means is I'm outside of orthodoxy. But William Lane Craig, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, and, and the point is, we can attack everybody for something. And these, these guys have decided to go to like the cream of the crop now and decide that they don't like his apologetics and his theology. Stop reading them. This policing in the body is just sickening. We don't trust the spirit. We don't trust that Christ is in charge of his church. We think we're in charge of doing it. It is just a disgusting thing that's happened. I'm reading a book right now. I'm just going to be rude and pull it out. Uh, it's excellent. I'm going to tout it here. It's called, it's by Oz Guinness, the author of Re Renaissance. It's called Fool's Talk, and it's called Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. And he goes on and talks about in this day and age of internet and the unifying of the world through technology that we have completely lost our minds about who Christ is and what the, good, the message of the good news is with all sorts of apologetic approaches that are just reprehensible. And he talks about in the very early in the book about how, listen, um, we, need to start dealing, we need to start dealing realistically with some of our claims. In the past, we got away with a lot of our claims. But he says we have a really sharp, sharp, atheistic crowd out there now and they're holding our feet to the fire and the stuff we used to claim and get away with is now just being laughed at and it should be we are we have ridiculously bathed ourselves in rhetoric that this hypes us up but has no basis in reason and God is a reasonable God and he works with us where we are it's like when we talk about the flood and we talk about fitting all the animals, every animal to some, every single one on an ark. And so one of the arguments that was passed around for a while, and I heard, I've heard some very intelligent people pass this along, that God shrunk the dinosaurs down to this big so that he could fit them in along with every other creature. And, ooh, yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good one. I think that's how we did it. Do you realize when we make this stuff up how stupid we look? And stupidity is not going to work anymore. We need to get off our uh, stupid positions and just start being reasonable. Maybe it was a geographical flood. Maybe it was the animals of that area. Maybe it was the animals of the whole world, but all the species hadn't blossomed out. And it didn't include dinosaurs, nor did it include every type of rabbit or whatever. It, let's start backing off the zealous dogma so we can start getting a reputation among people that uh, says they're loving, they're reasonable, they 
they want to know truth. And they're patient with me and my questions and stuff. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, if This is an off-air question. If the fullness of the gospel is being in the person. Okay, this, is a, this uh, title line is the subject of our operators consuming large quantities of vodka before we do the show. Would... <laughs> I just heard this uh, very terrible insight. Would it be that the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God all in the person together, wouldn't that make it all the same spirit because they are all one? And whoever asked that astute question, he did a great job in asking it, I would say, yes, I would say that. I would say it's one God, and God, fullness of God within us, by Christ, became flesh. I would say yes, and I agree with that. It's the title that really messes you up, and that's usually the product of our You don't know what it's like to keep sacramental wine in this place. I mean, <laughs> and with the liquor stores closed on Sunday, it puts us in a precarious position. Just kidding. Um, this is an interesting from Byron of Calgary. He tells us that it's, he made an interesting observation. In the Bible, the name uh, for angels, Gabriel, and, um, and for instance, Israel, and all these different names for angels, uh, if they're angels of God, always end with E-L or have E-L in them. Gabriel, Michael, uh, E-L, because L is the connection to God. And that, uh, but Moroni breaks that rule. And, uh, and so it's a really interesting insight that, biblically speaking, angels in their economy of heaven that come to deal with man on earth have the L in their name, or renames include the L when uh, Jacob became an angel, so to speak, but that it's not there when it comes to uh, at least that angel in the Book of Mormon. Something to think about. Uh, this is from uh, Jessica in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, do you have anyone in San Antonio, Texas that I can talk to? Jessica, this brings me to go to hotm.tv. Just start rummaging around in there, and you'll see a pop-up, and in that will be a phone number. The phone number is 801-590-8413. Call it during non-show hours, anytime you want, and you will be transferred to a person or at least to a message where a person will call you back, and they will be your link to answer questions for you. Uh, we don't have anybody in San Antonio, Texas now, but if anyone's watching from that area and wants to be put in contact with Jessica, as long as you're not a perv or something, call us, write us, and we'll make the connection. Jessica, be on your guard. You never know who's out there. All right. Um, this is from uh, New Zealand. It's from Foodie. He says, there's a saying that you use all the time, and I'm trying to understand what it means. He says, it's, H-A-B at it. Hab at it. He says, hey, you say, Sean, if people want to pay tithes, hab at it. It's up to you. You're still a brother, etc. I've never heard that saying in Australia, he says. So please clarify. Well, what it is, it's the fact that my parents or my dad's ancestors came from Arkansas. And so I say, hab at it, meaning go ahead and do it. Have, H-A-V-E. I'm not saying have at it. I'm saying have at it. And so there's, it's for you. Uh, 
uh, foodie in New Zealand and Australia. Finally, we got an email from a man uh, in, or a kid, I don't know, he writes like a kid. He says, um, Hi, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I find that what you are doing is indeed in your best interest, if you only knew, but not the community that you are in. Being a Christian, which I am, does not mean bringing down other churches because you do not agree with the principles you have not studied and put your efforts towards. Uh, second, I would like to ask you about Isaiah 29, all right? And, then, and, and so Isaiah 29 in, in the LDS church, Joseph Smith used Isaiah 29, ingeniously I might add, to help describe the Book of Mormon's origins coming up out of the ground and speaking from the dust. They have interpreted the passages in Isaiah 29 to be saying this is talking about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Now, uh, what, what Jordan says here is, if you read the passages in Isaiah 29, you will find that Isaiah is speaking about the future and a restoration of a book. Now, I want to tell you right now, what we're witnessing here in this email is a young man or a man who has been taught this interpretation of Isaiah 29 and is regurgitating, and he talks to me, you will see that if you read it, he's talking about the restoration of a book. That's not in there at all. It's not even part. Book is not mentioned. Writing is not mentioned. Speaking is mentioned. But it doesn't have say anything about a book. Where did Jordan get the idea that Isaiah 29 was talking about a book? Because when he was taught the Bible in the LDS church, he was taught that this refers to the Book of Mormon, and that's how he interprets it. Now, listen, I get that. We all do that. We've all done that in every walk of life. But how many things do we all do that in? Do we just take how we've been taught and just say, this is what it means, and I'm not going to differ because this is what it means. And, and not give it any thought, because that's what Jordan has done. So I want to go to Isaiah really quickly, and we'll wrap the show up with this. Is that in the Old Testament? Just kidding. <laughs> they moved my Isaiah. <laughs> okay, Isaiah 29. This is what he's talking about. It says, Woe! To Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. So right there you have the preface to what it's talking about. Ariel is another name for Jerusalem, the city where David dwelt. Add, year, add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. I will distress Ariel, and there will be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and I will lay siege against with a mount, and I will raise force against thee, and thou shalt be brought down, and shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that has a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. And that passage was taken by Joseph Smith and saying it's talking about the Book of Mormon coming out of the ground, speaking as if out of the dust, this new book, this new revelation. That's how you can twist scripture. But if you read how Hebrews wrote and how they describe things, 
what this was talking about was the destruction of Jerusalem and how they're going to be brought down so low that they are going to be like the lowest belly, dust belly walking creatures talking as if they're speaking up from out of the ground. That's all it is. That's the imagery of that. Any, check any noted uh, Hebrew scholar, they'll admit, even the Jews who don't believe in Christ will admit that this is the context. And then if you drop down, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, and it keeps on going and talking about Ariel. And oh wait, there is one uh, that talks about, uh, down at verse 11, the book that is sealed. And that relates to Ant, uh, Char, uh, Anton and the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. But I don't have all my facts for that to cover because I can't remember them. So he was right. It does mention the book. That's another part where it's talking about the book. And uh, I'll try to cover that next week when we open up. So uh, we can address Jordan's comment or question. Finally, one last thing to wrap it up. Uh, Jeffrey Holland in the last general conference, he quoted from the book of Isaiah chapter uh, nine, verse five, I think. And that's the one that Handel put to music. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When Holland, the Apostle of the Lord, spoke, he said, quote, to quote, it is the promise of him who performs these wonders, who himself is the Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, Ellipsis, the Prince of Peace, of him I bear witness. What he did was he truncated that passage. He removed the, um, uh, the, mighty, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, from that text. He removed it right out of there. Why? Because it conflicts with the teaching on the ontology of God, and he didn't want to include that Jesus was called the everlasting Father. So they will, use, they will take Scripture and not even give the full thing. Yet, on the LDS site, where they cite the talk, it gives a reference, and it says Isaiah 9.5. It doesn't say it was messed with and moved around. Okay, uh, can you ask, Sean, if theonomy goes against the sacrifice Christ made? If I understand it right, theonomy is the study of evil. It goes against, if, if I'm wrong on that, someone correct me. Does anyone know? Walking Encyclopedia, theonomy, anyone know that one? That one, I think theonomy is a study of evil, goes against the sacrifice Christ made. I don't understand that question, so I'll have to study to see if I understand what the word means, and we'll go from there, and I'll also hit Jordan's thing on the book being mentioned next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the 